Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. The Tony Award-winning director, Sam Gold, wants to eliminate any barrier between the audience and a piece of theater. To that end, he removes all elements that actors might use as a crutch in their performance, like an unnecessary prop or set piece. And he utilizes the physical theater space to bring the actors as close as possible to the audience. In many of his productions, including Hamlet at the Public Theater and the Broadway productions of Look Back in Anger and The Glass Menagerie, Sam creates what he calls a theater with no stage. Of course, there is a stage. It just blends into the audience's physical space and therefore into their emotional experience. As he says, I like putting actors in the architecture that is perfect for the piece we're making. For the upcoming production of Chekhov's Three Sisters, starring Oscar Isaac and Greta Gerwig, Sam has decided to move all the seating at New York Theatre Workshop and create a theater in the round to facilitate a more intimate experience for his actors. Sam's emphasis is always on the actors, and he's worked with some of the best in the business, including Laurie Metcalf, Adam Driver, and Glenda Jackson. Combining skilled actors, an architectural approach to directing, and the belief that theater is inherently up for interpretation has made Sam one of the most in-demand directors working today. There's no definitive Hamlet, he says. Theater is continually changing. Here is my interview with Sam Gold. Thanks for joining me. Um, I've counted up the productions I've seen of yours, and it's a pretty decent number. I've seen about eight shows that you've done, but I feel like it is woefully insufficient because you are startlingly prolific, and there are notable gaps where I don't have firsthand experiences. So for a couple of things that I'll mention in this interview, uh, I'm drawing from research rather than attendance, sure. just to start out. Um, but what I do have, though, is uh, our memories of your work from really way back. I was on staff at Juilliard when you were a student oh, wow. in the that. directing program. Oh, wow. um, and it was very cool to sort of take stock of some of the um, drama department's students and see what they were doing. You and Oscar Isaac was a student at that time. Yeah. And to sort of see that talent uh, begin to grow in a really cool way. I wanted to ask, how did you conceptualize the role of a director when you were a student? And how has it evolved to the way you approach directing now? I think I can, you know, when I went to Juilliard, my sort of interest in directing started was, uh, when I was in undergrad and sort of academic setting, I was really interested in experimental theater from learning about it in performance studies context in college. I had a really great college professor or two that made me aware of the avant-garde theater. And I got a job when I came to New York working at the Worcester Group. And I was the assistant director and dramaturg for three years there. And while I was working there, I was I also got into this very small directing program at Juilliard. It was a, it was just two of us 
that were kind of hanging around the uh, drama division at Juilliard. So I was taking the classes with the actors at Juilliard half the time, and I was working um, for Elizabeth LeCompte as her assistant half the time. And it was that a sort of combo of um, Juilliard's kind of, they, you know, Juilliard's drama division came out of this kind of regional theater um, uh, Shakespeare training. So I was getting that kind of what I would call conventional um, pedagogy about the theater, um, you know, that was sort of started in in the 60s or 70s and was developing through when I was at Juilliard. And then I was getting this other very different view on what performance could be at the Worcester Group where the performers were things like um, having um, pre-recorded audio played in their ears and simultaneously trying to perform their roles, saying the things they were hearing in their ears. So I was getting very different um, uh, ideas and about um, what performance could be. And so the you know, you can tell the sort of organizing principles. I was really interested in performers and performing. Mm-hmm. And my interest as a director has always been in working with actors. But I was both at Juilliard and at the Worcester Group sort of thinking about pushing pushing around the edges of what each, each company's um, sort of rules were. I was sort of yeah. suspicious of all the rules, of, you know, at that time. Yeah, and each one can be like a, a tempering device against the other. Yeah, totally. You know, I've always hopefully tried to bring a little downtown uptown and a little <laughs> uptown downtown. I think that's definitely been something that just happened. Maybe not by, that wasn't necessarily, that, that, saying that out loud is never an aim of mine, but I guess it, it just was, you know, my my background and the things that were influencing me happened to make me do that. So I remember back then, maybe like 2000 four or five, you directed a production of Edward II. That was my thesis at Juilliard, yeah. Yeah, and that, I think, put you on people's radar as kind of this director to watch, and that was kind of an exciting moment, and I remember specifically seeing another production that you did, which was a new play written by a Juilliard student. I think it was called Bathing Van Gogh. Oh, yeah, Brian Tucker's play Bathing Van Gogh, for sure. And I really loved that. I'm not sure if it ever got a production, did it? I don't know whatever happened to that play after Juilliard. You know, it's been a while since I've been yeah. in touch with Brian, but it was a beautiful play. It yeah, was. was yeah. I really, I really loved it. And I was thinking about that in light of talking to you today, one being brand new and one being quite old. Yeah. And your thoughts on new plays versus old, because you went on to do several years of new work and then wove into the classics. Yeah, I mean, I when I went to Juilliard and when I was at the Worcester Group, it was always with an interest in old plays. At the Worcester Group, they were taking classics sometimes, sometimes not, but they were often taking classics and they were using them as kind of background for making their own work on top of it. You know, the, what people call postmodern, postmodernism. They were taking these texts and they were kind of making art with the text instead of of the text. Yeah. And I was really interested in that and in postmodernism, but I also was interested in something simpler uh, in my approach to the classics. I didn't say to myself, I want to direct 
you know, freelance direct new plays. That was never sort of on my mind when I was in school or starting out. But when I was at Juilliard, the playwriting program was so good. Mm -hmm. Um, it was an amazing and still is an amazing program. And I was, I wound up just meeting so many peers who were excited about making work who were playwrights. I didn't meet other directors. There was only one other director in the program. (laughs) But what I met were a lot of people my age who loved theater and who were writing. And so that wasn't what I set out to do, but I met a lot of writers at Juilliard and got interested in making new work with those people. And that sort of aligned with just a pragmatic thing, which is that New York is a new play community. New York doesn't care about old plays. New York Mm -hmm. cares about new plays. As a theater town, we're one of the biggest theater towns in the world, right? You know, there's New York and there's London and there's Berlin and you can sort of name, you know, big theater towns. And New York's a very big one and and it's a town that's really almost exclusively interested in new work. There are revivals of classics, but it's not the economy of the town or the energy of the town. And so because I was making work in New York, it was just much easier and much more um, energized to be making new work. And so I stopped doing classics for a while until my career had gotten on more solid ground and I could choose projects. I could say, this is, hey, I want to direct the play Hamlet. Then I went back to doing those plays. As far as a new play town, though, wouldn't that be specific to the nonprofit companies, Playwrights Horizons and Second Stage and so on, rather than Broadway, the commercial realm where they want the known entity. There are new plays, but there's this emphasis, I think, on the the known quantity to guarantee but a certain you know, that interest. Isn't, that isn't a large part of Broadway. I mean, Broadway is mostly new musicals mm. and some new plays and a few revivals. The amount of plays being revived, classics being revived on Broadway, it's not, that's not a large part of the economy. Mm-hmm. I have done a few of those because there are things I really wanted to do. There's not a lot of people making a living exclusively doing Broadway revivals, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So the first professional production I saw of yours was Look Back in Anger. I think it was at 2012, um, John Osborne's play from the 1950s. And that kind of made me recognize a certain style that you had that I've been sort of tracking through other productions I've seen of yours in that the stage was maybe 10 feet in depth. It was a lot less than that, actually. What was it? It was, I think, six feet deep. It was very, very, very shallow. Very shallow. And so the actors were really on the brink of falling off, which I felt was the point and showing how they're living in an untenable situation. Um, really came across by the uh, just tiny acting space they had to work with, Um, which brings a larger topic that I want to address with you. Starting with, tell me your thoughts on making the stage physically different or physically altered to facilitate the experience for an actor. Yeah, uh, it's, um, it's, architecture is really important to me. I like working with performers and I like putting them in the architecture that is perfect for the piece we're making. So I, that's what those, that's what I tend, the first question I tend to ask is who's going to, who am I doing this with? And then what, what kind of environment am I putting them in that will make the most 
interesting um, performance come out of them. Like if you you put performers in a challenging kind of space or a space that has some inherent um, uh, puts them in some inherent relationship to the space itself. I think you get very real and very interesting things out of the performers. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, and I like theater as something that um, is, is architectural. It's, you know, we're, the audience is in a physical environment with the performers. That's uh-huh. like its basic excitement. That's why we go to theater. It's why I love theater is I'm in a room breathing with other people. So I tend to think really early about what that environment could be like. And I tend to set up challenges for the performers with through the environment because I like watching the performers do their job in relation to those challenges. And I think interesting things come of that. Yeah. So did you begin to feel a kind of dangerous vibe or, or energy based on how close they were to the physical edge? Yeah, I mean, it, it was not literally dangerous. You know, if you fell off of there, you weren't <laughs> going to kill yourself or anything. But um, but it was more, it's more psychological. Mm-hmm. I think an actor has certain um, crutches, things that make life easier. Uh-huh. And having a lot of space to move around, you know, what you're taught as an actor is like, you know, try to cross stage right and pick up a prop and play with it while you're talking and it makes you feel comfortable and it makes you your relationship to the audience easier. I like taking those things away. So what if you couldn't cross stage right to get a prop because there is no stage right? And what if there was no prop? (laughs) And now you just have to stand there and deal with the psychological situation that the play's putting you in. And I think I was looking for a very naked experience with Look Back in Anger. It's a very raw play with some very big emotions in it. And I thought I would take away a lot of things and put these actors in a position where they had nowhere to hide. Um, Mm. And so it was much more about that than it was about them being in some kind of precarious. I mean, there's there's some symbolism, visual symbolism to that that I thought was interesting, but mostly mostly the symbolism is secondary to what I think it's going to do with the acting. It's about creating a certain kind of acting. It's different to act standing up against a wall with the audience right in front of you with nowhere to go than it is sitting on a couch in a proscenium theater. Mm -hmm. The next show I'm doing, Three Sisters, is going to be in a very small space in the round. And we have to reorganize the entire theater to do it, take out all the seats, put down all this platforming. We're spending like the whole set design budget just reconfiguring the seats of the theater for so that the actors will be in the relationship to each other that I think is right for the play and the production. So I I put a lot of energy into just making a context that I think will give the actors something interesting for the play. That's so interesting. I mean, in Look Back in Anger, even though the the precipice wasn't a, a significant drop, of course. I do remember feeling nervous they were about to fall. Oh, that's funny, Because yeah. the two male actors, who yeah. were Adam Driver and Matthew Rhys, um, they have uh, some physical fighting. Yeah, totally. Um, and they were quite close to the lip of the stage. Yeah. So maybe they, I mean, I'm sure it's choreographed so carefully, but from the audience, yeah, that it does, it really, really does. That was also, I w- I'll say looking back, I think that was the most successful stage combat I've ever had in a show. Mm. Because I had this really narrow, really shallow space. I had this 
huge concrete wall that was really weight bearing. So you could really throw somebody up against it and there was nowhere else to go. And I had two very, very physically adept actors. Matthew and Adam were just two really good fighters, like stage Mm -hmm. fighters, you know, and they were comfortable being physical with each other in a way that a lot of actors aren't. And so they did some, they did some crazy shit in that show on a sort of stage combat level. It was all based on the rugby and wrestling and stuff. Yeah. And they really, they grappled on that set. And because the set was so shallow and it was like strewn with lettuce. I mean, it was like, it was covered (laughs) in crap. And so it looked, it did look pretty precarious. And I'm interested in that. I did two plays in my career where I felt that the mess and the danger were really important. One was Look Back in in Anger and the other was King Lear. They were these plays that just needed a huge amount of chaos Mm -hmm. and messiness for them to be their, you know, platonic selves. And, And so I made spaces that in both instances were very precarious and literally precarious for the actors. So with Look Back in Anger, very little space to try to wrestle two big guys wrestling with each other, but with very little space to do it. And in King Lear, doing this big Shakespeare play, but with like rubble all over the place and, you know, you know, a a Lear in her 80s, you know, trying to navigate a bunch of detritus all over the (laughs) set. And that, you know, I'm always safe. You know, safety is always a priority. It's never about actually putting humans in an unsafe um, environment. It's all staged and it looks precarious but it's never actually precarious it's theater but i like the precariousness sometimes and the challenge that that makes for the actors because i like the audience to feel like something real and physical is happening on stage and you feel like it's real oh my god those guys are wrestling they're right on the edge of that stage and you feel there's some there's a reality to that that i think makes you lean into the play my favorite thing in theater is when something real is happening on stage that you can't easily undo. That's why yeah. I love eating on stage. Yeah, totally. Me too. <laughs> I always have a lot of food on stage. I, <laughs> I love like that. food a lot. And when you referred to the mess, I thought you were going to say Hamlet because... Oh, yeah, get messy in Hamlet. Quite yeah. messy. So, I mean, Ophelia is burying her dad, Polonius, and she brings on real dirt, real flowers, and a hose. Yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering if the stage which is a red carpet was extra absorbent. Was it? Oh yeah. The set for that show was, um, we took the carpeting of the theater itself, which is this maroon industrial carpet that we found in the Ansbacher theater. It actually sadly is no longer in there, but it was just this great old maroon carpeting and we matched it and continued it in the playing space so that there was no set. Like with Look Back in Anger, there was no set. There was no environment except the theater itself. Mm-hmm. We just made the carpeting of the audience a, a, a little patch of it for the actors. But under that carpet, there was like this big trough that would catch all the water. It was all built to, it was built knowing that we were going to drown Ophelia with this hose. Like yeah. that idea of the hose and the dirt was baked in from the beginning. So we tested carpets to make sure they wouldn't get milled. You know, they they weren't going to be gross. We actually replaced the carpet halfway through the run. It was all, 
it was all designed to be able to do that. But we did every show cover an actor in in dirt and then turn this hose on. And so it And just let it run of, and run. Yeah, it became I mean, it became this kind of river of mud <laughs> yeah. um, on stage, which then informed Act Five, which I felt should be a bit more chaotic. So that's true. I forgot about that. It wasn't. It wasn't a big mess until Act until Act Four or Five, <laughs> and then it was pretty messy. I, I think someone who came to one show at the public and it was that show would just think like, oh, here's the dated carpet that's been here for decades. Yeah, that was the idea. Was it should I? You know, a lot of people do this. I see a lot of designers and other directors interested in this it's not just me but the idea of like making use of the actual environment that you're in instead of a fake one so mm-hmm. taking the walls of the theater and wrapping them around the the playing space taking the existing materials and and working with them it's a sort of architect's point of view on theater as opposed to a set designer's one mm-hmm. and i like thinking of set designers as an architect's job and so i yeah hamlet hamlet and and um and look back were both based on the same principle that way of we basically just closed off the the playing space like whatever space usually has a set in it we just closed it off with the same materials that the theater were made out of and turned it into a, a theater with no stage yeah and then put the actors in the audience so also in a glass menagerie where you have the black stage with the exposed pipes to feel like you're walking into the space in the rehearsal time before the set has come in. Yeah, exactly. Is, is your feeling in, in all these examples that the audience will feel as though they're coming into what has always existed in that room? Yeah, that's the conceit, you know. I mean, I think theater audiences are smart enough that, you know, enough of them are smart enough to start thinking, did the production do this or was this here originally? And yeah. they can parse all of that. And I'm not particularly trying to pull one over on anybody, but I'm trying to make an environment that naturally and organically feels like the thing itself. With The Glass Menagerie, it was about no artifice. It was, the play was a memory. It was a, it was autobiographical. And it was the, to me, it was the author looking at a room full of people and saying, this is a story about me and my mother and my sister and what happened when I left my lamb and moved away and he was telling that story to the audience and the memories that were haunting him were showing up coming alive and so I didn't want the imaginative world to be created and represented in a set or or, or in a design in in a directorial vision I wanted it to be represented by the people the people were the memories coming alive. Mm-hmm. It was the actors coming alive into that room. So I wanted the room to just be the room, the Blasco Theater. I'm standing in the Blasco Theater telling a bunch of people about this memory and about this time in my life and about my mother and my sister and what happened to all three of us. And that's all I wanted it to be. So I got rid of everything else. I took away everything that wasn't the people. And so it was a totally empty space. Mm-hmm. I think in addition to the deceptiveness of the simple stages there's also a feeling in your work as though you're reading the play for the very first time yeah as though there haven't been many revivals like in the case of glass menagerie there was another production just a few years prior um and hamlet's done all the time yeah (laughs) so when you read a script 
how do you have the, the, the certainty, this is a question I'm always curious about with directors, that, that your read on it feels the most truthful? Is that coming out of um, an instinctual sense? Like, I feel that Laura is this way, that Tom is this way, that Ophelia is this way. Or is it like in the, the play space of rehearsal, mm-hmm. you gain that knowledge? I mean, this is a huge, uh, huge, um, important feeling of mine that theater is absolutely by necessity interpretive. It is an interpretive art form. It is not a pure art form. Music, a novel, you want to have a, you want a pure art form, a painting, they exist. Theater is made in collaboration in a space and it is interpretive. There is no definitive Hamlet. There is no one way to interpret that text. That text is designed to be interpretable, made different by each group of people. There is no way I could try to do the correct production of one of those plays. There is no right way. And even if I could recreate in exact detail, the original productions of those plays, the audience wouldn't be them. So you take a play like The Glass Menagerie and you're writing for 1945 New York, that's an audience with a very different relationship to, for instance, homosexuality than the audience coming in 2018 or 17, wherever, whenever I did that show. The idea of the closet, the idea yeah. of the life that Tennessee Williams was leaving in St. Louis and finding in New York and the life he was leaving behind and the struggles that he was going through, they're just different now. So you can try to recreate the aesthetics of the playwright's intentions, but you can never recreate the audience's interpretive power. Mm. And all we have is our interpretive power of that text. So as an audience member, that's how I start. I start like an audience member. I read that play and I let it affect me. And Glass Menagerie is a play that just destroys me. It moves me so much. It always has. And so I start there. Like, what is it that's moving me? What is it telling me? And how do I help 800 people feel what I'm feeling right now when I read it? And when I started working on The Glass Menagerie, I had a very overwhelming feeling about that about what it would be like for Tom to to be in that house with his sister and his mother and leave them and decide to leave and what that was like for Amanda and Laura, what the precariousness of their living situation was and the desperation that all three of them felt. And I felt when I was reading it in 2017 that that had a lot to do with Laura's disability, that she needed her family for certain things and she was stifled by them in certain ways and that so was Tom and um and that the dynamic of those three people was of course informed by Laura's disability that would be that would have to be why Amanda behaved the way she behaved, why Tom, why they all behaved the way they behaved. It was at this core of it. They were a very close family where one of the three of them was dealing with disability. So in order to focus 
on those three people and the way their dynamics as family members were complicated and the pressure cooker of their environment created some drama between them. I wanted to get rid of some other trappings that um, they're like theater conventions that we now think of Tennessee Williams in a certain way. We think of that play in a certain way. It's one of the most produced plays in America. And so we have a lot of preconceptions about it and a lot of theater conventions that have been sort of barnacled to it. And I wanted to get rid of those barnacles so that I could actually focus on what moved me about the people. Hmm. One of the most interesting ideas I heard you say in an interview about the Glass Menagerie is that we're told that this character, Laura, is so fragile and delicate. And what if another lens into it is she's always been told how fragile she is. Yeah. And what's the effect on a person when you're always told you're so delicate? Yeah. Um, but it doesn't read as as honest to, to the person living it. Yeah. So um Well, can you imagine everyone around you constantly talking about how how fragile you are? I mean, does anyone think that they're that way? Would anyone talk about themselves that way? That seems definitively, I don't think I'm being revisionist or postmodern to say. <laughs> I think Laura is a very strong character with a very strong will who has been told by her mother and other people how fragile she is. Yeah. There's a great quote from a New York Times article about you that says that in your work, you're trying to get the audience to read the minds of the actors. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of relates to what you're saying about the elements that feel like they're crutches or that they're in the way or that they sometimes can hinder what an actor thought was helping are all obstacles or obstructions to the, the actual genuine emotion. I'm always just trying to take a lot of things away. You know, it's a lot yeah. about stripping things away that get, that get in the way. These crutches, these things we rely on, these conventions that cloud our vision, try to sort of push them aside. If we, Hey, if we shook this up and we took this stuff away and we didn't, we didn't have any of those preconceived things in the production, what would be left and how would we make something that connected to the audience out of what's left? Yeah. The more I think about your work uh, and it is hard to, to think about a thread because you're, you're, you have done so many shows and they are so different in style and story, but I, I really am interested in the way that your relationship to architecture and set design and the physical feel, like how the actor feels on stage, or I don't know that personally, but how I imagine it, viewing it from the audience, is so directly tied to the emotion that is being evoked through the words of the characters. I felt like in A Doll's House Part Two, for example, the set is both representational and non in that you have these uh, moldings that were seemingly 19th century moldings of a beautiful home and then the floor is a bright orange. I'm not sure if it was carpeted or hard, but it's it quite distinct from the walls. And it felt as though, given the subject matter of the play, what's a woman's role? Should marriage exist? What do women do when they feel like marriage is a trap or, or is it one? It's this sort of boxing ring of debating forces against this pristine yeah. <laughs> uh, 19th century backdrop. Is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, that's a great interpretation. I mean, the, yeah, boxing ring was something we talked a lot about um, when we were when we were conceiving of the design for Doll's House Part Two. The other thing we talked a lot about was divorce court, <laughs> um, and so that space was kind of based on some 
courtrooms and and public spaces like that where um you know you say molding is 19th century but um uh i'm looking around your house and you don't you've taken your molding away but um, (laughs) but a lot of a lot of 21st century architectural spaces still have all that molding you know we live with molding from the 19th century in the 21st century so Mm. a contemporary space um incorporates a 19th century space if you know what I mean and so I was making a contemporary space that happened to have a 19th century space as its history it's like it's the history of that which is a lot of the world we live in now anyway I think I was looking at some Scandinavian courthouses and places like that and they and they a lot of them were like these carpeted rooms but the yeah the architecture of the buildings were were centuries old so you'd have these kind of you know, 70s carpets against these 19th century huh. moldings. And yeah. that's what we wound up, that's what evoked some, what you just said was a very good articulation of what we hoped it would feel like. You know, we, we found a contemporary space that would give you some of the kind of the things that are going on in that play that it's, he's wrestling with 19th and 21st century rhetorical ideas simultaneously in that play yeah it's you're having a conversation about 19th century divorce and 21st century you know gender politics simultaneously in that play so the space wanted to kind of be the right boxing ring for that yeah for sure in thinking about the realism versus non elements in your shirt in your work um i think besides the set and how it looks there's the elements of how the characters are physically on stage, who you cast, and so on. And it leads me to my favorite thing you've done, which is Fun Home, um, which I view as a truly perfect adaptation in that it is so similar in its heart to the original and so different in its manifestation in terms of what you were saying about theater being a living, um, constantly changing uh, thing. And I think similar to a doll's house having a multiracial family that's never talked about Mm. in fun home, having three ages of one human exist on the same stage, looking at each other where that would of course never happen in life kind of gets to the, the emotional heart of it, which is in the case of fun home, if you're dealing with long-term pain, you're constantly weaving in your experience with that pain at various stages of your existence and wondering why you aren't further along or wondering when you had insights and merging your childhood self with your adult self constantly in one moment, which I think is what Alison Bechtel gets at in her book and what you in a totally new way got out in the musical. And I think what I, what I finally realized about your work generally is that the straightest path, the shortest path, to the truth of a story is not a straight line. It's not the realism and it's not the, 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 the detailed set necessarily. It's making the stage and the set and the actors in such a relationship to one another that they are compelled to act in a certain way that the truth comes out and the audience feels that. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. I think, <laughs> I think, um, Again, it's it, theater is just about breathing together with other people. So 
You don't need a set. You don't need realistic detail. None of that stuff has anything to do with theater. It, it, it's um, that's all um, that's all fashion. Mm. You know, it's it's in fashion to make sets look a certain way right now in America. If you were to go to if you were to go see five plays in Berlin right now, you'd see a very different fashion for what is theater. You know, aesthetically. So I think all of that to me is 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 fashion. You can either listen to what other people are doing around you and contribute to it. You can rebel against it. You can try to push it away and find your own thing. But all of that to me is fashion. What's interesting to me are these people breathing in this space. And I can either take the fashion or leave it. I'm I'm happy to do a play that's steeped in realism aesthetically, you know, too. I, I've done many realistic productions um and i enjoy that um but it's not what's that's not where i start or it's not what interests me most what interests me most is putting putting performers in a in a in an environment where something very real time is going to be happening mm-hmm. and the audience is going to be a part of it so with fun home having yeah three allisons on stage together and also when we got to do it in the round that you could see that you could see one watching the other yeah. because you're in the round and you can see over you you have like a sort of over the shoulder shot when you do a show in the round which you don't have in the proscenium so you can actually feel the way they the way characters look at each other in a different way in the round so things like that i'm much more interested like is it in the round or is it in the proscenium or are are we in end stage those things interests me a lot more than like are is there gonna be um is there gonna be are there gonna be walls and and wallpaper on them you know what I mean uh-huh so when you have those those visions based on how you read a script and now you're coming into let's say New York Theater Workshop and you're saying okay for three sisters this is what I envision and it's gonna cost this mu-, or they maybe they determine the cost but you say I think it's worthwhile to use the yeah, entire well, set budget. How does that conversation go? I mean, the good, I've, I'm very lucky that I've had a lot of crazy ideas in my career and, and theaters have been willing to support them that, that most theaters basically take the, take the philosophy that they have a certain amount of money to give a director and they're not really going to say to the director, how, why are we spending it making it look like there's no set? You know, like The Glass Menagerie was a pretty expensive set. Hmm. for it looking like nothing was there <laughs> because it had because I wanted to automate moving dining room table you know for the gentleman caller scene and I wanted to have these candles lit and I wanted this water effect and it wound up being quite an expensive physical production but I think what most people feel is like we trust this director we believe in their vision and we're you have this amount of money you can spend it making you know an ornate set or you can spend it making it look like there's nothing here, you know, it's your, that's your decision. Most people tend to understand why I'd want to spend it doing, doing that. When I'm showing up at a theater, no one's thinking that I'm going to, you know, make a totally realistic Mm -hmm. show for them, probably, that I'm probably going to ask for, you know, to pour some mud on the floor of my empty <laughs> set. Most people are going to figure out, figure I'm going to do something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, just to flip that though, for a second with some of the Annie Baker shows that you have worked on, um, the two that I saw were the flick and John and both of those 
actually did feel quite like detailed in, re in its rendering. Yeah. Um, in the flick, it's the very amusing effect of being in a rows, rows of seating yeah. and looking at rows of seating. And in John, it is a, a, a bed and breakfast that has all of the uh, tchotchkes and ornaments that so many of those like semi-rural, like upstate or up, you know, New Englandy. I forget where it takes place. In Pennsylvania. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, a charming, but yeah, but I, uh, yeah. all those details. It, I yes, Annie's work tends to be her plays. She tends to make us a, a space that they take place in, and she writes for that space very specifically. So the space needs to be made manifest. It wouldn't work as well, I think, for Annie's work to take away those details because she's writing for the way the actors are going to interact with those details, watching um, Georgia Engel, you know, serve tea and cookies, you know, was, was that was baked into the writing. But very similarly, because I think Annie and I really discovered theater together and discovered our, you know, interest as theater makers together it comes down to the same things I've just been talking about. It comes down to architecture and performance with the flick that that's all Annie. But what she's doing there is she's, she's making a mirror out of the fourth wall mm -hmm. and she's putting this audience, this empty audience on stage so that the, the theater audience is sitting in these theater seats looking at this theater. Yeah. And, um, and then she's making what to me was like a piece of, of, of dance, a choreography of watching these performers move through the audience, move through these empty, they're, they're cleaning popcorn up a move up out of a movie theater. But what they're doing is this kind of felt to me like choreo a, a sort of beautiful dance piece about people moving through an audience. So, so in a way it's very similar to what I was doing with look back in anger, which is putting the audience in this, you know, sort of in the exact same space as the performers in a weird way. I mean, mm -hmm. in that one, it was, it had this kind of mirror effect, but, but I think the, the flick had that really baked in and, and, and John as well, when you watch John, there was, you know, there was this big red curtain and, and when, when Georgia opened slowly kind of opened the curtain and revealed the set to the audience, you, you were like, you were in your, you were entering into this sort of imaginative yeah. world. There was this little kitchen called Paris. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it had, it was, it was working on you in ways that weren't simply about um, getting the details of a bed and breakfast correct. Mm -hmm. she, her work is not realism on that kind of meat and potatoes level. It wasn't, I set it in a bed and breakfast, go make me a bed and breakfast. It was, um, I think it, with John, the word uncanny, you know, yeah. it, it was a, it, the space was, it was deeply mysterious. It was, it was kind spooky. It was haunting. It was nostalgic. It was, it was, it played with ideas of imagination and, and fantasy, you know, having, you know, Paris, the kitchen cafe. And so she is a deep thinker about architecture and space. Um, more than just um, a, a writer putting a location down on a piece of paper and then you have to go make it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. As a last question, do you like stage directions? <laughs> um, 
Sure. I mean, I yes, I love all kinds of stage directions. I love Tennessee Williams writing these kind of poetic, mm-hmm. intense, long stage directions. <laughs> I also love Carol Churchill, where I was just reading her her last play, or maybe from a year ago, I was just reading the stage directions, which were something like, you can give uh, these lines to any of the performers. They're, I'm not assigning which line is said by which performer. And there are some speeches at the end here that you can insert wherever you want over the course of the dialogue. I love both. I love the prescriptiveness of somebody like an Edward Albee or a Samuel Beckett. And I love the looseness and interpretive um, base, you know, um, philosophy of somebody like Carol Churchill. I think all of that's really interesting. I, I think it's really interesting that a playwright has to try to take what is an interpretable and flexible experience and put a blueprint of it on paper. It's always going to be imperfect because whatever you put on paper is not going to be the show, you know you're speaking as a playwright, you're writing these sort of notes to the, to the future in a certain way. And I think that's, I think it points to what's interpretable and imperfect about, um, about the written play. Um, and I find it all really enticing and exciting. Sam, thank you so much for your time. All right, cool. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.